Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the authors of A Field Guide to Gettysburg, Carol Reardon and Tom Bossler. We are with uh, Tom Vossler and Carol Reardon, and they are the authors of this book, A Field Guide to Gettysburg. The uh, book says this is dedicated to the memory of our Civil War ancestors, and you select six names. Do you both have Civil War ancestors, or does one of you have six of them? Well, as it turns out, we each have three there. And uh, I have uh, uh, my, my great-great-grandfather, and uh, uh, he's, he survived the war. I have a great-great-uncle uh, who was the brother of my uh, grandfather's wife, so therefore my great-great-uncle. Um, he dies at Gettysburg, dies in the wheat field on the second day. And then another great-great-uncle who survived, went in at 18, served uh, four years, survived the war, went back home to the farm, fell off the barn roof, killed himself, uh, built in a new barn. Carol, Tragic story. My three ancestors, um, two of them are my mother's great-great-uncles. They came from western Pennsylvania. They were part of the 155th Pennsylvania and fought up on Little Round Top. Uh, they fought through uh, from the time of their enlistment in 1862 until one of them fell seriously wounded at Petersburg in 1864. The other one served the entire war. Uh, I'm the one who has the Confederate representative you know, on the list. <laughs> Part of my mother's family uh, goes back into Virginia, and so we happen to have a, con a few Confederates in, in, in my family tree. And uh, like Tom, I have one who was killed at Gettysburg. Um, mine was killed in Pickett's Charge, something I didn't even really know about until I was researching um, Pickett's Charge for an earlier book, and that mo that aha moment when all of a sudden you discover not only is this a great national story, but it has certain personal ramifications as well. Where did you discover that? Where was that bit of information? I was going through the rosters of uh, the Virginia regiments that were uh, in part of Pickett's division, and the family name uh, is, is fairly unusual, and whenever I happen to notice it, it gets my attention. And I did some digging around and realized that it's not a direct, re it's not my direct uh, line of ancestors, but it's a branch right off of it. And uh, well, I adopted them anyway. So. Do, do either of you have any artifacts from any of your ancestors who are at Gettysburg? Any stuff or diaries or anything, or have you read them? No, I, I don't. Um, we have uh, we have some family histories that talk just a few passing sentences about their participation in the war and, and uh, uh, leaving the, in the case of my great-great-grandfather, leaving the farm at 35 years of, uh, of age, uh, leaving wife and, and five kids to, to uh, respond to the call to go, to go fight. And, uh, and he did that. And he is the one who survived. So 
Just, just uh, family, family tradition, family history, a little bit, but nothing survives. Carol, I don't have a thing. <laughs> my, my family is notorious for not having a deep and abiding interest in in the history of the family, and I was the one who comes along and starts asking asking questions, and my grandmother, my mother's mother, happened to remember that her grandfather, she thought maybe fought in the Civil War <laughs> because she had vague recollections of when she was a child of her grandfather having a sword. And we went back and talked to an even older uh, relative, I think it was her aunt, and I got that first little nugget of information about an ancestor who had served in the 14th Pennsylvania Cavalry. Other than that one little tidbit, that was all I ever had to, to build on until I developed enough historical skills that I could start looking for myself. And then I found out we had a lot of them. And my, the rest of my family is still amazed. We did. <laughs> <laughs> were, you in, were you interested in Gettysburg at the time you started looking into your family connection, or did it go the other way? Around? I was interested in the Civil War from at least second grade. So I think the interest in Gettysburg was pre predated my interest in the family involvement. And Tom, you're interested in Gettysburg? Well, my, my dad and his brother, my uncle, of course, you know, carried kind of the family tradition of, of our and their ancestors uh, in, in the participation in the war. Uh, and, uh, and so that was, that was uh, uh, brought to me early as a child, much like Carol, from, from the family traditions and family stories. And I remember coming to Gettysburg with, with, with my father. And uh, and seeing the place and and so that's that was an interest. Military history for me as a, as a, as a professional soldier for 30 years was always something that I was very much interested in, part of professional development. But in the latter years, uh, focused principally on the American Civil War and especially on Gettysburg, since we live there now. What is it about the Battle of Gettysburg that gets so much attention when there were so many other battles that had large numbers of casualties? I like to think that a lot of it had to do with the fact that Abraham Lincoln came here. There's lots of different battles, but this is the one that Lincoln chose to come and visit. He came to Antietam and all that sort of thing, but he didn't leave behind an Antietam address. He left behind a Gettysburg, <laughs> Gettysburg address. <laughs> and of course, as far as, if you're looking for a mission statement, what we're committing the nation to, a new birth of freedom, I mean, it, it's something that still resonates, and it, it's very easy to make that relevant to what we deal with today. And I think that's a lot of it, plus the fact it's the, the largest battle of the war. It's on northern soil. It's closer to an awful lot of the uh, newspaper outlets of the day, the media outlets of the day. It got incredible coverage. Um, far more than a lot of other battles ever did simply because it was easier for all the northern newspapers to get reporters here. And there was a wonderful study that pointed out that most other battles in uh, the south, in, in Virginia or the Carolinas, there was always that little cadre of professional war correspondents who followed the armies and would send back their dispatches all the time. But here at Gettysburg, not only did they send in the A team of veteran correspondents, but they sent in the B team and the C team of reporters who could just add to the story, or in some cases add to the confusion, certainly add to the color of the story, and just gave us so much more to work with. It's one of the things you have in your book about uh, what did they say about it later, about newspaper reports and uh, sometimes conflicting or often conflicting newspaper reports. How do you, as historians, figure out what what really happened when you read these newspaper reports that are all different? 
Well, what we're searching for, of course, is the truth. And, and to do that, number one, you've got to really start with a primary source and ask yourself some questions about that source. Uh, is this source, was this someone who was there who would have seen what actually happened or who would have recorded what actually happened as opposed to hearing a story from a second or third or fourth party? So you want to, you want to make sure your sources are in a position to have uh, borne witness to the event described. And once you go through that filtering process, then you can pretty much come up with some assurance that, all right, we're on to the truth, we're on to the facts. And so we try in, in, in preparing this book and of course in the other work, we try very hard to get at ground truth, get down to the facts, rather than quoting uh, you know, a second or third source. But one of the things about that we wanted to do in that section, what did they say about it later, was to let all of those folks who are interested in the Battle of Gettysburg, but who don't call themselves historians, uh, to perhaps get a glimpse of what it is we do whenever we have to wrestle with conflicting information. The death of John Reynolds. There are five or six, we, we provided five or six accounts of, of what uh, reporters said about his death, but we called them from about 20. And was he on his horse or was he on foot? Was he close to the front? Was he not? Did he say anything or did he just fall without a word? Every account has a different spin on it. And it's just wonderful to see, to be able to show somebody, here's what we as historians have to deal with. Now, the bottom line, we would like to get to ground truth. To, to ground truth. But when we can't, one of the toughest things, we hate to do this, but our professional integrity requires us to say we can't come to ground truth because the, the foundational record is just so muddled that in their enthusiasm or in their ignorance or perhaps they believe they're being honest and probably they, are, they do believe this. Well, we an, just can't reconstruct something. There's an example of that in your book where you talk about Strong Vincent and there are two different markers at mm -hmm. Gettysburg saying Strong Vincent died here and they're in two different places. All right. And uh, it's hard to you know, go back and, and try and reconstruct that on uh, the exact spot to explain why, but they're there. He's, he isn't. I was just this morning, just a few hours ago, right there and showed showed my people that I was giving a tour to that, hey, there you are. That Strong Vincent fell here. That's what it says. And, so and then look over here, and this monument says that Strong Vincent fell here. <laughs> and then you just walk away with a little smirk and watch their reaction. <laughs> because you know they're going to say, so which one is right? And that's where we have to go back and say, well, we as historians have to say, well, both of these people believed that they were right when they uh, worked to put the markers here or over here. Um, <laughs> and then we have to say, well, we don't know. We weren't there. But then it gives us an opportunity to explain the process that we have to go through and where we have to draw the line. You both give tours at Gettysburg? We do. When people come there, if you're giving a tour to a group who has never been there before, what kinds of things do they ask about? Well, they, uh, and there are a lot of people who come for the first time. Uh, and, and they just want to have an understanding. They've heard about this place. Uh, you know, perhaps this is the most famous small town in America. Maybe, maybe not, but I tend to think so. They've heard about this place. So what happened here? 
why did it happen? How did it happen? And so they're just full of uh, really a lot of interest. And, and that interest in, in, in Gettysburg uh, has been there a long time and, and is, is continuing on, continuing on. It's part of, our, part of our heritage. Some come looking for ancestors. Some come with a list. They've got the names. They've got the units. Where were they? Where was my great-great-grandfather or whoever? Where was he on the battlefield? Take me to that spot. And those are always interesting, interesting kinds of things. Others, certainly more general, but, uh, but they've, they've, they've come to experience it, come to, they've come to Gettysburg to, to walk the ground and, and maybe check that box and say, yep, been there and uh, done that. Uh, but uh, continuing interest always in the battlefield, in the battle and the people. We've had uh, groups on the battlefield that come to us from the international community. Um, I had a group of international scholars who had come to Penn State University to uh, spend a year on campus learning about higher education practices here in the United States. And they are called the Humphrey Scholars. And the folks up on campus asked me to bring them down to Gettysburg, just to introduce them to another piece of American history and American culture. Uh, I got to meet my group and realized that many of them came from the Middle East. We had teachers from Egypt and Jordan and Pakistan and uh, a few other parts of the world. But So I had to ask, what do you know about Gettysburg? And of course, the one thing that they knew was the Gettysburg Address. Well, that creates a certain interpretive challenge for me. So I decided to do the tour backwards. We began at what's usually our last stop. We went straight to the National Cemetery. And we went in, we talked about the Gettysburg Address, and we, we walked around and let them see the graves and let them understand that they were actually in a cemetery, and that's where this talk was given. And once we used that as the foundation, then I could simply say, let's see why Lincoln thought it was so important to come here. And then we could go out and do the battlefield and answer a lot of their questions that way. But everybody brings their own lenses when they come to Gettysburg. They all come with their own uh, questions. A lot of the folks that we take around the battlefield, and we've done programs individually, and we do an awful lot of them together. Um, we do an awful lot of staff rides for military groups. Sometimes they're the United States Army, some, some, sometimes they're the United States Marines or the Navy, even occasionally the Air Force, but sometimes they come from international armed forces. Tom has a working relationship with the German Army, for instance. And we're always intrigued to see who wants to come here, what it is they want to get out of their time spent here, and we're glad to work with them as much as we can. Do, do uh, military officers or students who are in the Army study Gettysburg as, uh, f because of tactics and then they learn from it? What they're, what they're studying uh, is, is primary leadership. Leadership, communications, the production, uh, use, dissemination of military intelligence. Uh, the tactics certainly have changed. Um, the weapons have changed. But the principles of logistics, the principles of feeding the troops and providing the ammunition and all that, and, 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 and leadership. The leadership piece is probably the biggest piece that they come to Gettysburg for. Decision-making is a big part of what we do. If, if we are talking about Lee's, option, Lee's decisions on the second day at the battle, if I'm leading a history tour, our question as we start talking about the second day would, would generally be, well, what does Lee do? If I have a group of Marine Corps majors in front of me, that question changes. And that question becomes, what can Lee do? 
and of course the Marines always have an acronym for everything, and they have uh, they they sometimes fall back on one called Draw D, which is an acronym that means he can defend, he can reinforce, he can attack. W is withdraw, and the other D is delay. Draw D, and if you stop and talk about all those options, are they doable? Will they help him? accomplish his mission, all of a sudden, instead of a history lesson, you have a decision-making lesson, risk assessment, uh, just deciding what will further our, our, our purpose more than another. And then you can go back and say, okay, which one does Lee pick? Was that his best choice? Sometimes it, they'll go, yeah, and sometimes they'll say, you know, I think maybe he should have <laughs> thought about this a bit more deeply. And that's where the real lesson learning goes on for an awful lot of the military folks. Tom, you mentioned leadership. Can you point to examples of leadership at Gettysburg? Um, classic, classic example for me is, is right at the very start with, with the, the combination of Union Cavalry Division Commander John Buford and, uh, and then Major General John Reynolds, Commander of the First Corps, but also Commander of the Left Wing of the Army of the Potomac as they arrive at Gettysburg. And those two are going to work uh, as, as a team in getting this battle underway and getting control of the key terrain on the battlefield. That is the high ground running south from the town. They both recognized it for what it was and they're going to take the measures to ensure that for the remainder of the battle that uh, their leadership in terms of decisions and the way they're going to utilize their forces that the Union Army is going to stay on the high ground and, 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 and have that and they're going to shape the battlefield. They're going to shape the eventual, eventual Union victory for that three-day battle. Well, did that happen kind of accidentally? I mean, at what point as they were fighting their way through day one, did somebody say, okay, let's go up to Cemetery Hill? Well, it's, it's uh, again, the battle starts in military terms. The battle starts as a meeting engagement, the unplanned coming together uh, of two smaller portions of two larger armies. Uh, and so there, there, there is no definitive written plan, any idea, but as they came into the area, into the what became the battle area the day before, John Buford recognized where the key terrain was. That's why he moved forward of that toward where he believed the Confederates was, uh, where the Confederates were, in order to hold them off uh, of the key terrain by having the fight engaged, having it start out there west of the town rather than on the high ground south of the town. So. Once he's done that, then it becomes pretty obvious to those senior commanders, yeah, that's where we need to be. And the, and the first question, General Meade, when he arrives at the battlefield roughly at midnight between July 1st and 2nd, the first question he asks is, gentlemen, is this good ground for a battle? So the ground becomes very important, and it's, you know, in terms of the leadership, it's very, it's very key in their mind that, that uh, they fight from a position that gives them if not a fair chance, a better chance to win the battle. Did they fight to get Cemetery Hill, or did they kind of retreat and? No, they just fell back. To, they they fell back to it. General Howard, Oliver O. Howard of the Eleventh Corps, after Reynolds falls, and then General Doubleday takes over, and then Howard arrives, and he's a senior general, and he'll start to place reserve units, infantry and artillery, on Cemetery Hill, and have that as a reserve position for the Union Army to fall back to in the event they need it, well, on the first day, they're going to need it. The Union troops will be forced back by the Confederate advance uh, to the west of town, across uh, Her Ridge, McPherson's Ridge, Seminary Ridge, and then north of town, more Confederates come in 
pushed the 11th Corps back, the Union 11th Corps back through town, and all the Union troops end up then on Cemetery Hill, and then as it gets dark, they're spreading over to Culp's Hill in the northern part of Cemetery Ridge, and so the, the position begins to be shaped at that point, but they, they fell back fell back to those, those positions, to those reserve positions, so. Carol, can you think of an example of uh, leadership? Actually, I want to build on what Tom said. Um, I had a group, a very unusual group with me one time. It was a group of newspaper editors. And these were newspaper editors who were in the middle of their career. They still had bosses they worked for, but they had young reporters who were reporting to them. And my assignment was not to focus on General Lee and General Meade, the senior commanders, who we usually talk about, but to focus on the Army's middle managers, the ones who owed responsibilities up and down, much like they did in their own careers. So one of the first people I picked on was General Buford as well. Now, my tendency to, is to go out there and say, I'm going to tell you a story. <laughs> and that's generally the way you hook them and reel them in a little bit. But... When I'm done with the story, I'll look at them and say, okay, what did General Buford do to set up his superiors for success? And there are certain things he does. He's an excellent communicator. He's not a very wordy communicator. He can pack more into five lines than almost anybody I've ever seen. It's a report that will let General Meade and General Reynolds know that they've made contact, with whom they've made contact, the size of the force, their in apparent intentions, all kinds of information. Um, he m maintains the information flow. It's not just the battle has started, but it seems like every 15, 20 minutes he's sending back a, an update. So that allows his superiors to make informed decisions about how to deploy the rest of the army instead of just what's going on at the point of the spear. Um, the second question I ask is, what does General Buford do to prepare himself for success in a moment like this? Every soldier's waiting for that moment. And you know, is he going to earn his paycheck today? And basically, he does that. He's, he's one of these guys. Every organization has somebody who's on the cutting edge of the newest te technology. That's John Buford. He'll try out all the new weapons that uh, folks are bringing to the patent office in Washington. Uh, <laughs> He's really interested in these carbines that the cavalry use, the sort of the shorter rifles that can fire. Um, they might still be uh, single-shot weapons, but they're breech loaders, not the old muzzle loaders like the infantry is using. If he sees something that looks interesting, perhaps he offers up a regiment to be a test bed, evaluates the weapons. But he's the kind of guy who's going to do that kind of thing and, and think through all the things the cavalry might have to do and figure out how he's going to handle it. Do they have to charge mounted? Do they have to do reconnaissance? Do they have to actually fight a delaying action like on July 1st? What do you need to do each one of those different things? He's thought all this through already. He doesn't have to think it through on July 1st. The third question is just simply, what does he do to prepare his subordinates for success at the key time? He's a big, he's a big trainer. He loves to train his troops. He always uh, he, he requires frequent inspections. He does all those kinds of things. Now, if you happen to be those newspaper <laughs> editors, it doesn't take a big leap of logic for them to figure out the applications of those various things to what they did. And so that's where you take just one man and a good and a well-told story, and then let them sort of draw their own lessons out of it. It works great for him. Colonel Chamberlain up on uh, Little Round Top works equally well. 
if you uh, think about what he had to do. And uh, basically I did the whole tour just focusing on those folks who weren't Lee and Mead who had to do that. And it, it's not difficult to find leadership lessons in Gettysburg. Does Joshua Chamberlain deserve all the credit he gets or is some of that hyped mm. up because of movies and books? Well, I'll say that, uh, that Chamberlain and the 20th Maine uh, have gotten the credit for what they did. And they did a fantastic job there on the left end of the Union line at a critical time uh, in the history of the bell. Having said that, I can think of the 17th Maine, the 19th Maine, who people have never heard of, that are going to do, um, well, the 19th Maine pretty much makes a, makes a, a sacrifice, if you will, the 17th Maine. They're going to fight equally hard, but we have, we have our hero in Joshua Chamberlain. He has a long life, lives till 1914. And, and so he has, he, in that time, did a lot of writing about the army, about the war, uh, and, and good stuff too. And so, uh, you know, we don't, uh, I don't begrudge the, the fame to, the, to uh, Chamberlain in the, in the, in the 20th Maine at all. Uh, I would like, though, to somehow have the opportunity to recognize similar kinds of units. We have, uh, we have a case of, now, July 2nd, on the, on the left end of the Union line, the 20th Maine is going to hold that position. Well, let's go over what's going on on the right end of the Union line about that same time. We pulled some of the 12th Corps troops off the hill, sent them over to try and reinforce, reinforce against Longstreet's assault. That's left very few troops on Culp's Hill one of which is the 137th New York. They're the last unit on the right end of the Union line, and they're being attacked by the Confederates coming up on the hill. What do they do? Just what the 20th Maine did. They're going to refuse their flank. They're going to hold their position and hold that position strong enough to keep the Confederates off the hill. But nobody ever remembers Colonel David Ireland today. <laughs> and Colonel Ireland was the commander of the 137th New York. Now, he'll die of disease late in the war, but... Really, that's a story that doesn't get told very much. So why do we have Chamberlain? Well, Chamberlain, of course, as Tom suggests, um, he helps to create his own place in Gettysburg history. Um, there's a little marker down at this, uh, right on the park road. And it, it seems innocent enough. It simply points out that the rock walls that are on the ridge right above where the sign is were built by Union soldiers on the evening of July 2nd. Uh, the point being that they were not built at the time the 20th Maine did their fighting. Now, the man who pushed to have that marker put there was Joshua Chamberlain because he didn't want anybody thinking that his men had the luxury of that extra protection. They fought without that. Um, so that's part of it. But really, it, has, it, it would fit nicely into the what did they say about it later right. a segment. Nobody ever wrote a regimental history of the 137th New York on the other end of the line. But back in the 1950s, when we were getting really close to the Civil War centennial, uh, a man by the name of John Pullen wrote a history of the 20th May. And it became a pretty good seller, and all of a sudden we became very familiar with that regiment and this Colonel Chamberlain character. And then if you add in the impact of the Killer Angels, in the early 70s, and then the movie Gettysburg in the 1990s, you have a bona fide hero to contend with. But there were many people who acted in equally heroic manner that day. And uh, it's just a shame that some of them didn't get their moment in the sun too. 
Well, we probably shouldn't get too far into the program before we actually talk about your book. <laughs> if somebody buys this book, what do they get? What do they get? They get 35 stops. We've divided the three days of fighting into 35 stops around the field. At each of those stops, we ask six questions. What happened here? Who commanded here? Who fought here? Who fell here? Who lived here? And what did the soldiers say about it later? So that's really trying to, trying to our experience on taking people onto the battlefield. Uh, those six questions really kind of frame that kind of information that we're giving to the people that travel on the field with us. That's what we want them to do. We have uh, a technique, we have a map for each stop. And the map is oriented in such a direction, we want people to stand in a relatively certain place and look in a certain direction and we allow that uh, to happen and describe. We, we try to paint a picture in their minds, whether they're sitting in their armchair at home or they're standing on the battlefield with a book in their hand to kind of paint that picture in absolute clarity, hopefully, so they have a full understanding of what happened. When we, when we wrote this, we did not want our readers to be passive readers. We wanted them to become active learners in the process here. And actually, um, well, one of the things that we did not want to do is simply have a narrative paragraph. We wanted folks to have to read the book and look up once in a while. Look out and see the red barn to your left front. The action that we're describing broke around that barn. See the tree line off to your left. Look at the uh, ripple of the ground to your right. Rather than just get the, a package of information that is really just a print on a page, now you have to actually look out and see it. But now for the first time, especially with the battlefield rehabilitation, you can see so much of that that you couldn't see before. And that was one thing that we wanted to do. But the other thing about that specific section, um, what happened here, that provided us with an opportunity to tell the story basically through the eyes of the participants themselves. Uh, most of the citations that we use in that section, the quotations that we use in that section, come from the after-action reports, come from newspaper accounts come, that, were, that were written right in the days following the fight, uh, come from letters that letters the soldiers, that, uh, soldiers wrote home. Soldiers wrote home to their families, but just as often, soldiers wrote back to the local newspaper. There were almost always one or two soldiers in every regiment that wrote back home to the hometown newspaper up in New York or in western Pennsylvania or in central Ohio, just to give the folks back home a taste of what was going on. And through the magic of digitization these days, so many of these sources are now available to us. So we went out of our way to try to find some descriptions of familiar actions on the battlefield that perhaps describe it in a different way, provide a different set of lenses, a different voice, and told the, told the story that most frequent visitors to Gettysburg already know, but give them a new perspective, a new story, some new details. You, you also have a section, some sections in here on individual vignettes. Yes. Where you select mm -hmm. one unknown Person. Do you have some favorites out of the completely unknown soldiers? The, this part, this part became, <laughs> this part became an, a complete obsession for me. I think. Um, I asked this question at a recent gathering: If you had to name a soldier who fell at Gettysburg, who wasn't one of the generals, who would it be? Well, of course, immediately, Wesley Culp. 
Amos Humiston, the sergeant from New York who fell uh, holding a picture of his three children in his hand, and that picture was used to identify him. Lieutenant Cushing and his artillery at the angle. But after about five soldiers, the group got real quiet. And it just basically reconfirmed that whenever we tell the private soldier's story about those who fell there, it's only a small handful of stories we ever get. Well, again, the magic of digitization helps an awful lot here because now it's, um, we're able to get at things like the compiled service records. We're able to get to the, what they called the widow's pension files for the Union soldiers. And by and large, these are not sources that most Gettysburg students have tapped into very much yet. And so my philosophy was, well, when we get to a certain stop, say the angle, I'm going to open up uh, one of the rosters with casualty lists on it, and I'm going to go, that guy. And I'm, I'm just looking for a good story. Uh, we'll check out maybe three or four of the men of, say, the 20th Massachusetts that fell in a location. And in that fight, and then I'll see what I can find out about them. And that's how the story of Sergeant George Jokel gets in here. Um, just an interesting story. Or uh, Private Edward Pito of the 1st New York Independent Battery, Cowan's Artillery, right at the angle, right near the clump of trees. I mean, it's such a fascinating story. He's an emigrant from, um, from Ireland by way of England. He and his wife got married in England before they got on a ship to come over here to the United States. They were in uh, central New York when the war broke out. He answered the call of his new country. He'd been here for about 10 years and ends up um, an artilleryman at the angle. A Confederate artillery round practically cuts him in two. It's a very grisly death. He's buried in the, National the Soldiers National Cemetery, but his commanding officer, Captain Cowan, used his death uh, not only to point out the sacrifice of, um, his, uh, uh, of his own battery, but to point out um, how sometimes soldiers who write about battles get carried away and they want to explain um, almost the indescribable by creating impossibilities and things like that. And he used Pito's death to say that, you know, if you're hit by a shell, you're, it, it pretty much kills you immediately. <laughs> and there are other soldiers with similar wounds who the, the stories, the legends have them gasping out almost minor speeches before they pass on. And he's saying, no, that's just not the way soldiers die on battlefield. There's an education element to it. But um, those stories are some of are part of the book that I really, I can't, I, given it's the nature of the subject, I can't say I like it, but I probably learned more from, from tra tracking down those stories than part, other parts of the book. Part of it too was our, our, our desire, again, to get away from so much has been written and rewritten and rewritten about the generals and, the, and, and, and all that. We wanted, we wanted to give in this book, we wanted to give the soldier a voice to what it was like. And we feel we feel we've done that by the methods by the methods of our research and reporting and selecting and 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 to give the soldiers a voice in in the commentary. To have an understanding of how it looked through their eyes, uh, how they felt about it. Uh, and that's that was one of our primary objectives going in and and I I dare say we we held true to it. And and actually there was one more thing that I'm glad we accomplished through 
the approach that we used here. And that was we took the story of Gettysburg beyond the battlefield, <laughs> especially when we get into the widow's pensions and that sort of thing. We have to think about those who were left behind. In many cases, the soldier who died here was the breadwinner for the family. And so what we have are the widows or the dependent mothers or minor children um, applying for, they called them pensions, but essentially they're survivor's benefits. A private who fell, who fell here at Gettysburg, his widow or his dependent mother could apply for a pension that would bring her the huge sum of $8 per month. A colonel's, uh, a colonel's dependents back home might get $30 a month, but a private in the ranks, a sergeant in the ranks, any enlisted man, $8 a month. The amount of paperwork that they had to jump through, if you think uh, government paperwork is pretty uh, complicated today, it was no easier back then. The little things that you had to supply. How do you prove a marriage? No marriage licenses. there's marriage licenses. Mm. How do you prove children's birth when, before birth certificates? Um, interesting challenges and watching how these various families satisfied it, worked through the process, and just kept, kept body and soul together is actually part of this story. Now you said that one of the parts in each chapter is who lived here. <laughs> who, who lived there when the battles commenced? Well, you know, this is an interesting part of the story as a research, and it was sparked by, oh, years ago, some years ago, I, had a, I was doing the tour, and the lady asked, or made a statement. She said, you know, I was very considerate to have this battle in a national park. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, ma'am, I think you missed the point. You know, this was, fought, this was fought on somebody's farm. And most of the battle is fought on about 38 different farms which surround the town. There's some fighting in the town itself, but most of the fighting is fought on these farms out there. So who are these people? Who are these farms? And, of course, I have a background. Uh, with a, I have a farm at Gettysburg, west of town, and I raise beef cattle. Carol is part owner in some of the cows with, with my wife Barbara and I. And, and, and so we have that. So our, our interest in this is natural. Well, what happened to those people? What happened to William Bliss? Came down here uh, a, a couple years before uh, the battle. Came down from western New York, you know, off the coast, uh, get away from the coast of Lake Erie and get out of that snow belt and come down here, settle down in Pennsylvania. And, and by golly, we're going to have this battle here. We're going to have we're going to have uh, uh, Confederate soldiers uh, in his barn and in his house, and we're going to send out Union soldiers to chase them out, which they do, and then the, they're going to get pushed back, and the Confederates come in there again and shoot into the Union lines. They're sharpshooters. Well, and this time we're going to take those Union troops out there. We're going to burn that house and we're going to burn that barn to the ground. Don't let the Confederates use it to sharpshoot back into our lines. So the whole place is destroyed. Battle's over, armies march away, William Bliss comes back to his farm, ashes, nothing left. Both the state and federal governments established a system for damage claims, where you could, uh, through a series of affidavits and so on, claim whatever you lost. You could count you know, 10 tons of hay if you had it in the barn and it was gone. You, they killed your bull or took your bull or cows or chickens, and you could inventory all that, send that in, itemize it, and get paid. Maybe. And maybe not. William Bliss is going to die before his claim is paid. His wife will die before his claim is paid. 
All but one of his daughters die before his claim is paid. And guess what? His claim is never paid. The last ruling on it taking place somewhere around, I believe, 1912, if I remember right from what we wrote in there, 1912 or 1914. Why didn't they pay it? It's uh, the challenge to get the, the testimonial evidence of who did what. And, and that, was, that was never satisfied. Plus the fact the requirements could be very specific. In many cases, they would say, you can only get paid for that which the United States Army used to support United States Army activities. So a farmer might put in a claim for $1,500 worth of damages and get a check for $45 to cover three tons of hay that Union cavalrymen took and fed to Union cavalry horses. Any damage that was caused by the action of combat was not deemed something that was caused by the Union forces alone, and therefore payment was disallowed. So for all these poor farmers who find themselves right in the middle of the battlefield with the armies going back and forth across their fields, they pretty much got nothing. They might have filed a claim. They might even have had the claim approved, but it was usually approved if the funds are allocated. And maybe the funds aren't allocated. Basically, very few Gettysburg area farmers, property owners, got any payment whatsoever. Did the farmers generally return and start farming their land again after a time? Well, in the case I just recited to you, then the answer is going to be yes and no. Uh, William Bliss eventually is going to sell his farm to the neighboring farm of Nicholas Cordori. Nicholas Cordori stays in business. Uh, William Bliss sells out, goes back to western New York. Nicholas Cordori farms until he has an accident in the fields, but... Uh, and, and, and dies from his injuries. This is many years after the war, after the battle. Uh, so some will return and, and make the thing a go. Uh, others, others won't. Uh, and of course, the damage that's there is, is pretty significant. Those that are out there managing uh, woodlots, you have a woodlot in there to harvest firewood and so on. Well, guess how much is that wood worth now? It's full of lead. Hmm? We're not going to run, take those logs down and run them through a sawmill? No, don't believe we are. And so it's, it's those kinds of things, just the residual damage that will continue, continue on. Well, you also, uh, a lot has been written about Lee's command to not uh, loot when the, the mm -hmm. army was moving north. But you have here on at the end of day one, by evening, hungry Confederates broke into homes and stores seeking food. A Philadelphia editor reported that many atrocious acts were committed by some of the troops belonging to the rebel army, some of them of a character too indelicate to mention. Among the many acts of vandalism prominent was that of wantonly destroying with axes and hatchets in hand houses and furniture, robbing stores and otherwise committing acts worthy of the Dark Ages. So that happened in town, too. Well, nearly, first of all, I would have to say, okay, who's the Philadelphia editor writing about this, and when is he writing about this, and where is he getting his information? Uh, somebody whose house might have been invaded by a couple of Confederates looking for buttermilk probably can expand that to be a pretty bad story. But yeah, there are going to be, there's going to be some damage, yes. I mean, there's going to be plenty of damage. 
one of the things the Confederates are going to do once they get into town is they're going to establish a picket line through the southern part of town, and they're going to tear doors off of buildings and shutters off of, of houses and all that to build up a bit of a breastwork or some protection uh, to give them some give themselves some cover. Uh, naturally, they are going to be hungry. Uh, yes, Robert E. Lee said, "Don't go and steal," but that that was on the march on the way north. And actually, he, do, he doesn't say, don't go and steal. He actually has said, we are up here for the purpose of uh, refilling our stocks back at home, but we're going to do it in, there's a process. And when he laid out his famous orders, those were orders that laid out the processes that uh, quartermasters and um, those delegated by them uh, were supposed to follow. Nobody was supposed to steal anything. You were supposed to get paid for it, even if it was Confederate money. Confederate script. Um, but it was all supposed to <laughs> or be Or an done. IOU. <laughs> oh, yeah. There, but there an was IOU a process would satisfy, there. would satisfy yep. due diligence in getting paid. And if the quartermaster wants to go to the nearest infantry regiment and take 20 guys to go out and help him uh, accumulate the stores that he's looking for, that's perfectly fine. What Lee doesn't want is... Uh, half a dozen privates going into private homes and intimidating individuals. But in the heat of battle, all bets are off. At the end of the day, if you're hungry, you're going to go looking for food. If you're, uh, if you're looking for alcohol, you're probably going to go looking for that and find that too. I want to ask you again about your book. If someone wants to take this and go cover to cover through the Battle of Gettysburg, how much time should they allow? On the battlefield? Yeah. I'm going to say day and a half easy. <laughs> uh, at least. I mean, we actually broke it down into uh, chunks. We, I, I personally think that anybody tries to, try to, yeah. tries to tackle it in a day, it's way too ambitious to do that. If all they do is go to each stop and just read the what happened here part, I, I suspect they might be able to pull it off, but most people are going to want to read some more and they'll get bogged down. So what we did was we simply took the battle and carved it down into smaller chunks other than day one, day two, and day three. There's the opening fight, and that's the, about the first five or six stops. Mm -hmm. Then the fight expands and reinforcements arrive. Then the Union line collapses. So you can do July 1st in three separate chunks. You can do a morning chunk, have lunch, go out in the afternoon. You, you can break it up into smaller pieces, and that way you can do as much or as little of it as you want to do at any given time. A lot of the visitors who come to Gettysburg, especially the people coming for the second, third, fifth, twelfth time, <laughs> uh, have certain areas of the field that they really like to focus on. And so we've set it up in such a way that if you want to explore the whole battlefield, you can do that. But if you really want to come to grips with what happened on Culp's Hill, well, you can do that too. And so uh, we, we just really leave that up to the person who has the book. Tom, if there's somebody who has not been there, or they've been there 10 or 12 times, yeah. can you point out one of your favorite kind of off-the-beaten-path uh, spots that they should see? Well, I, I kind of like uh, really the stuff over on, over on Culp's Hill uh, because people don't get over there very much. I mean, we do a tour. We do a tour on Gettysburg, and the Park Service gives us uh, two hours with a client in uh uh, that's uh, that's very thin time in terms of being able to get around the field, and so places like Culp's Hill and the actions that take place over there, 
we don't get people over there very often, so I, I kind of like to, I kind of like to do some of that, and uh, uh, but still by far, the first day, the first day to me is the most important day of the battle, and that's gonna, a lot of some people will disagree with that, but uh, um, uh, when you appreciate what what happened on the first day and what uh, what the Union Army was able to do in terms of preserving the high ground for the eventual victory. The first day was very important. Carol, you have a favorite off the beaten path spot? Well, what I like to do really is to take groups across the field of Pickett's Charge. Not from the usual perspective, an awful lot of visitors who come to, the, to Gettysburg uh, stop at the Virginia Mon Monument, and we'll, we'll stop you there too. And they will interpret and think about Pickett's Charge from that spot. But if you're standing in front of the Virginia Monument and you're looking across the broad open field toward the famous clump of trees, you're not looking at the field of Pickett's Charge. Um, it it's, comes as a, as a surprise to a lot of people to realize that that's not really where Pickett's men really were. Pickett's men were actually deployed around the um, Spangler Farm about a quarter of a mile to the south and actually out forward of um, Seminary Ridge, the main Confederate line. It's possible to walk down there to the Spangler Farm, and I really prefer to take groups down there to put them right on the spot where Pickett's men really were. And what you realize when you're down in that swale around the farm is that you can't see the Union line at all. When Pickett's men came onto the field, they had no idea what their target looked like. They had no idea what they were walking into. That was all pretty much um, hidden from them just because of the, the rolling nature of the ground. Um, an awful lot of the reporters, when they came to Gettysburg to, uh, to recount what happened on July 3rd, probably never went down to the field of the charge itself because they wrote that the field of Pickett's charge is flat like a tabletop. And as soon as you get down to where Pickett's men deployed, you can tell this is no tabletop. It actually rolls significantly, and there's a large part of the first part of Pickett's charge that is really happening out of sight of the Union forces completely. And so I really like to take groups across the field using the, the path that Pickett's men actually took and stopping every so often to ask several questions. What can you see from here? What can't you see from here? Who can see you? Who can't see you? And every time we do that, your answers are going to be a little bit different. And they're probably not the answers you thought you would have answered if, you, <laughs> if your original notion was that the field of Pickett's Charge is, uh, is a tabletop. How long did it take uh, Lee's troops to march in Pickett's Charge from the time they said go to the time they reached the angle? We have exactly one account of a soldier who's, who told us how long it took. He is a private by the name of William Monty of the 9th Virginia Infantry. And he is supposed to have pulled out his watch and said, oh glorious, it took us only 20 minutes to get here. Trouble is, we don't know where he was standing when he said that, and he's killed in battle. And somebody remembered that those were his last words. Um, I've taken groups across. It, it's hard to tell because we only take, say, a group of 50 across. We don't have to deal with 12,000 or so to get them across. But usually, if we don't stop a whole lot, between 20 minutes and 30 minutes is a pretty good guess of how, how long it takes you to get across. How close did that charge come to succeeding? Well, it depends. It depends on exactly what the purpose of that charge was. If the purpose of the charge is to break the Union line, it succeeds. 
Pickett's men broke the Union line in at least two places. Now, not for very long, but my, my problem with that decision that Lee made to hit the center is, okay, break the line and then what? Uh, is there an exploitation force? Nope. Is there a plan for <laughs> what's going to happen? Uh, after it, wh what happens if you break the Union line, but instead of breaking and running, which is pretty much what Lee seems to think is going to happen, it's what's happened before, what if the Union counterattacks? What if the Union takes all that artillery on Cemetery Hill and simply turns it around to sweep the fields that the Confederates would have been in if they'd broken the line completely and in greater force? We don't have answers to those kinds of things. So um, it, that, that my, my answer to you got an interesting reaction from you when I said <laughs> that it, uh, it did succeed. Well, if Pickett's job is to break the line, they did it. It's all the other other pieces, like what happens next, what happens that, next? That, that didn't fall into place. So what Pickett's men did was basically there lost. Was, there was no force designated to exploit any success there. In other words, if you think of sending in the lead, the lead unit to bust through the line, and they're going to pretty well exhaust themselves in doing that. Well, then what? Who's going to go through that gap, through that breach? Who's going to go back into the enemy's rear to finish off the action, force the enemy to surrender or retire or whatever? There's not such a force available. Who yeah. dropped the ball on that? Was that Lee? Was it Longstreet? Mm. Who? That one's a little harder to guess. Yeah. Um, Robert E. Lee gave command of the attack to General Longstreet. There's no question that Longstreet is in charge of coordinating uh, the advance of Pickett and Pettigrew and Trimble. There's no question about that. Where the, you have a bit more of a gray area is who's in charge of sending up an exploitation force? Who organized one? Uh, who, who would give them the order to advance? Um, there are some accounts that have Longstreet holding back some forces, but there's really a bit of grayness in the record as to who that force would be and who was to order them to go and all that sort of thing. This battle marks Lee in command of the Army of Northern Virginia for, for 13 months, the past 13 months. And if you go back and look at the battles that were fought within that time, uh, it's pretty revealing in the fact that if we set aside the Battle of Antietam or Sharpsburg as a draw, all the others are Confederate victories. In most of those others, the Union armies fought one or two days, then withdrawn or retreated. And perhaps that's lingering in Lee's mind, this is going to happen again. Uh, his boys have done everything that uh, he's asked them to do, and uh, they can do it again. And so that might be part of it. And then you look at that, there might be a little hubris built in here in his mind and what he's thinking. And so it's, it's, a, very, it's a very interesting and complex thing to contemplate. Did it show Lee's weakness as a general without having Stonewall Jackson nearby? I'm going to go ahead and do it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> we oftentimes get asked, what would have happened if Stonewall Jackson were here? And we do have an answer for this. <laughs> and the answer is, if Stonewall Jackson were here, he would have smelled very bad because he's been dead for six weeks. <laughs> um, we don't know what would have happened if Stonewall Jackson were there. And that wasn't quite your question. Uh, he, this is his first big battle without Stonewall Jackson. And he's had to reorganize his army. And when we talk about leadership issues, 
uh, the relationship between this, the commander, Lee, and his senior subordinates, um, his three corps commanders, Longstreet, Richard Yule, A.P. Hill, is a matter of some concern. Before this battle, Robert E. Lee preferred a rather hands-off approach to dealing with his senior subordinates. When he had Longstreet and Jackson, he trusted them completely, and they had never seriously let him down. Somebody asked Lee in the years after the war to describe his command philosophy, and he said, I always thought it was my job to bring my troops to the right place at the right time, and then I relied upon Providence and my senior commanders to win me great victories. And so he had developed his own working relationships with Longstreet and with Jackson. In the absence of Jackson, he just hasn't had the time to create those same kinds of relationships with, with Hill and with Ewell. And those two men were used to working uh, with Jackson or with Longstreet or with others. They were used to getting very specific orders, and uh, there was no need for you to do any interpreting or any, uh, take any initiative yourself. Uh, especially Yule would get orders that say, go there, be here then, do this then. Um, it's a very different situation. So there are some um, issues that Lee has to deal with in the absence of Jackson. But let's also take a look at General Meade. It's not fair just to put all this on Lee. Um, General Meade has commanded his army for three days, three days. when the battle <laughs> begins. Three days. He goes to bed on the night of the 27th of June, commanding about 10,000 men, and wakes up realizing he's now in command of 94,000 men. His, his challenges have expanded astronomically. Well, I wish we had more time to talk, but we are out of time. We've been talking with Tom Vossler and Carol Reardon. They are the author of this book, A Field Guide to Gettysburg. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.